our stride now. We're into episode four of the Very Clever Doctors Clinic podcast. None of the doctors featured are very clever, and that still remains the case because it's still myself, Dr. Mike Clements, and my colleague, Dr. Mark James. This time we're discussing homeopathy, and I'm just back from my shiatsu, so I'm feeling quite invigorated because, as you'll see as we go through the podcast, both of us are huge proponents of homeopathy. No, not really. But we talk about this and some uh, other alternative therapies and some of the issues around it. It's very funny. So on my drive over here today, Mark, I wasn't feeling particularly well. Uh, and I did wonder if at some point maybe my chakras had got knocked out of alignment. Out of alignment, yeah, sure. Um, so I was thinking about maybe going to see a homeopathist um, later today. What do you think? Well, I think if you want to give away uh, 50 to £125 pounds for some water um, and you feel that would help, I think it's probably a, probably a good idea, yeah. Good idea. Do you think I might be in the wrong job? I think we are definitely in the wrong job. Um and I think we probably nail our colours to the mast right at the top of this, which is that, that neither of us see any value to homeopathy. But what we're going to talk about is why we don't see any value to homeopathy. And even that isn't quite true, because I think there is a value to some alternative therapies. And some people may get some benefit from homeopathy, but it's the 100 to 125 quid, I think, that we both probably don't Mm. feel particularly comfortable about so when you get a homeopathic drug that they prescribe do you know how it's been made roughly or can we can we explain that well we were talking about this before the podcast and in some ways i do feel perhaps a little too judgy although that's never stopped me in the past about homeopathy because I've never really done that much reading Mm. around homeopathy because I've always seen it as such quackery Mm. that I've never thought to or never felt the desire to really go out and try and understand what the arguments that those proponents of homeopathy use. But it sounds like you've done a bit more than I have. So my understanding of the medication that they prescribe is that basically it is uh, like treats like now, so originally it goes back to the 18th century, a guy, I think it was a guy called Kahneman, and basically what he felt was that you could sort of inoculise the body against the illnesses if you took a little bit of whatever caused that illness in the first place, and then you dilute it in water. So it involves in a process of serial dilution, taking one drop of arsenic, I think we used to use originally, into a pint of water, uh, mix it up, and then take a drop out of that into another pint. And so you'd end up with so such a diluted solution that there would literally be no active molecules even at that level still in the in the water and that also there would be a degree of shaking involved and this process was called succession i think and basically the water somehow imprinted on itself um but hang on here there sounds like there's a degree of i can follow the logical train of argument there that if i give you a bit a little bit of something yeah then you're going to become inoculated yep. against us. Nice slurp of your tea there, by the way. Oh. Um, <laughs> um, the So I just went for my flu jab, and mm. I was given a little bit of flu. 
You're right, but there what you've actually got is something that exists in that tube. So although you are given a little bit of flu and you, uh, you know, your body mounts an immune response to protect you, there is actually something in there to react to. Well, what's the dif- so where's the difference in the logic it, there? Then? It's so diluted for homeopathy that there is no longer any active molecule in the fluid itself and somehow it's just been imprinted on. So it's not that you're even getting a tiny bit, you're literally getting nothing. So would your resistance to homeopathy be slightly lessened if you were given your arsenic in a more concentrated form which, if I was the, given, which the Victorians used yeah, to do yeah, yeah if I was given something that actually worked and there was something in it so you know I don't know herbal Chinese herbal remedy treatments you know there's there's all sorts of that alternatives there and that actually there are you know there are active components in fact lots of our original drugs come from plants but this is nothing there is nothing active in the fluid it has just been imprinted with something through some through the process, and I think it's that imprinting process that we struggle with because that's where there's there's no, no. there's no, no evidence, no. there's no scientific model that you could apply yeah. to that. So you Correct. could you could argue with the we'll give you, and we do this with quite a lot of things actually, don't we? Um, around allergen therapies, we give you a little bit of the mm. thing that is causing an allergy, mm. and so essentially you develop a tolerance to it. So then that allergen, the thing that causes an allergy, doesn't have quite the same effect. And of course, we do it with inactivated viruses mm. for things like flu vaccine. So this concept, this idea of training your body to resist something by giving it a bit of that something is not no nope. it's not a bizarre concept yeah, that's well recognized there's plenty yeah. of science to support that but it's the fact as you say that homeopathic remedies have been diluted to such an extent that actually the thing that you're going to, to that's going to cause you to desensitize doesn't actually exist mm. in that solution anymore but there's lots of things other than that very classical view of homeopathy that come under kind of homeopathic umbrella don't they so things like scents and Mm. things that you burn and it's almost i think become a shorthand for lots of other alternative therapies yeah i mean i mean i mean how do you respond then to a patient that comes to you requesting advice that they're gonna i don't know let's say reiki healing uh what do you think doctor so there is no evidence to mm. support many alternative therapies. But many of my patients mm. get a lot of uh, either relief of their symptoms or a very much an increased sense of well-being by going to see their Reiki practitioner. I don't know if there's a correct mm. term for a Reiki, a Reikiist. I don't know. Uh, or a homeopathist. I'm not even sure if that's correct. Um, because... It gives them something that we can in terms of medicine. And the fact that it is a natural, and I'm doing inverted commas with my fingers when I say that, a natural remedy makes people feel as though perhaps it's more attuned with their body. And I wouldn't I wouldn't dissuade them from that. I wouldn't try and detract from that benefit that they've gained. What I think that, that I struggle with as a medical practitioner is that it is being wrapped up in some pseudo-medical-slash-scientific mm. package to try and explain away why it's working. Yeah, I mean, I'd agree with that. I suppose my also my concern is I my 
particular background is a sort of relatively high deprivation area and actually people there I was concerned that people were being encouraged to spend money um, on something that had no evidence that it helped besides a placebo effect and so I, I would agree with you I would it, when people came requesting alternative therapies I you know many years ago I would have said oh no there's absolutely no evidence don't do it now I, I would take the line that if it if it feels it helps them that's fine but my concern is that it's not often without a significant degree of cost or um, and very rarely people will actually refuse conventional treatment for uh, an illness and let's say asthma and only want either homeopathic treatment or some alternative treatment and then that becomes quite worrying for us as doctors and there are extreme cases of you know people only having homeopathic cancer treatment rather than conventional treatment. Yeah, what's the difference between medicine and alternative medicine? This is a joke, what's the difference between medicine and alternative medicine? Medicine works. And the, I, I think you're right. Now, I don't think that, I think it isn't correct to say that patients don't derive benefit mm. from it. I think we feel bad because our perception is that patients are being taken advantage of. But let's take an example of uh, massage, for mm. instance. Lots of people get a lot of relief from symptoms and a feeling of well-being for going for a massage. Mm-hmm. This is a this is rectal massage, not the ones mm-hmm. that, that not 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 the other ones. Although I guess there may be there may be some benefits derived from that. We'll probably cut that bit out. So patients go and have a massage, and there's very little evidence, very little medical evidence to show that that really does much for you. Nobody died from not having a massage. True. But it's not being wrapped up in a pseudoscientific package. Mm. We're saying that is time out your day where you get to relax and essentially you you get to be touched, which is a pleasurable sensation Mm -hmm. and you will feel better at the end of it. It may also have some physiological benefits in terms of treating muscle aches and pains. Mm. How is that different to, to a Reiki practitioner? Act, we didn't do this. Tell me a little bit about Reiki. What is Reiki? Um, my understanding of Reiki, and again, we didn't discuss this, but it is a form of massage that involves no touch. Um, and I think their sort of hands are a Reiki practitioner passes hands over body just an inch or two above the surface of the body and somehow there is a transference of energy or problems or something that's my understanding of reiki that's all i know about reiki literally yeah. nothing else yeah and i think it's that's non, non-contact sport <laughs> non-contact sport i like that now so what why not if if you feel good after going to pay i don't know how much a reiki practitioner practices but let's say it is comparable with um a, a, a masseuse or a massage mm. therapist mm. um why would I what's the problem if I come to see you say well look I want to I actually doc I think that it's my chakras that are out of alignment and I want them to get realigned by going to see a Reiki practitioner and the the Swedish masseuse that I usually go and see doesn't realign Mm. chakras so for me it would depend on what the problem was um, whether the person could afford it um, and I agree with you I would say that if they felt that it benefited and they had it before then that's fine but it, it, it would certainly depend on what 
the problem was that they were going for i mean if they just felt stressed and they felt somehow it helped and actually maybe lying down and having somebody pay attention to you for half an hour even if there's no physical contact i'm sure there could be a benefit from that i would certainly be you know more concerned if it was to treat their asthma or their depression or their mood or something if it didn't work that would be my might be my concern yeah and i had a, I had a family member who exactly your example of asthma treatment who tried mm. something called a petico method is that something you're familiar with no. it's a it's a as far as i understand it and again not an expert in it um uh, and maybe it's reassuring that as doctors we're not mm. experts in any of mm. these alternative therapies or, uh, or anything uh or indeed anything the but this is a this is a system of breathing right um that has been promoted as improving lung function and i think there is some evidence to show that essentially it's a bit like pulmonary rehabilitation Mm. that it does it does change or increase lung function but of course that's not the issue in asthma so it is not a uh it is not an effective treatment um Mm. for that although this is of course where we get set upon by Mm. the proponents of alternative therapies Mm. i mean certainly i remember the most I had not been long in practice and a elderly lady came to me and said, what did I think about alternative treatments? I said, well, as long as it does no harm and you can afford it and you think it helps, that's fine. And she said, well, is it okay to spray WD-40 on my hip? Because it's really helping. Um, and that was a difficult one because um, clearly she felt there was some benefit from it. But, you know, there are issues with putting oil onto your skin that can cause problems. So that was a slightly extreme example. And was the logic there that as a lubricant... Yeah, that was the logic. It helped joints and it seemed to help her hip joint. So was it okay to carry on doing it? Very good. And did you advise her that actually WD-40 is a water displacement chemical and she should have been using something like 3-in-1 instead? Uh, That's a good point. I didn't know that at the time, but I should have with hindsight. Yeah, 3-in-1 contains Teflon, Mm. so it's a much better lubricant. Oh, right, yeah. Clearly worked well. Yeah. Um, But uh, another example, so I I looked after a chap who um, actually, had an abusive background and as a result had had sort of alcohol problems and actually had chronic pain and he'd really his pain was he'd been to pain clinics and it really was recurrent and really difficult and he got sent to it was actually uh this person had been trained as a gp but now um the the doctor was set up as uh some sort of nutritional expert um the doctor diagnosed all sorts of um, essential amino acids he was missing and prescribing stuff that cost him two or three hundred pounds and I had some real concerns with that mm. because A was that wasn't going to help his pain and in fact it didn't and also from his background that was an awful lot of money to be spending but um, and and that's where when it crosses over that it's uh, you know being used again there was all sorts of pseudoscience around it the letter I had was all these reasons of why he was lacking all these different things in his diet and how he'd benefit from n- none of which there was any evidence for as far as I could uh, research um, and, and then for me that becomes a problem that people are spending money time or you know diversion from other things yeah and there's a huge industry around yeah. finding out what you are deficient in yeah. it's usually zinc by the way it is uh, yeah. I know we know why curiously do you enough. know why no yeah because there's lots of zinc in sperm so for males we most of us are uh, short of zinc oh, apparently <coughs> Very obviously, obviously not me no um no virile virile man mm. that you are uh, 
I'm just thinking whether it was selenium, whether I've got that wrong and it's selenium, not zinc. Selenium's good selenium. for your prostate, apparently. Oh, yeah, no, maybe it's zinc. Yeah, lots of selenium's good for lots of things, apparently. But this is this burgeoning industry in sending your hair off to be analysed to see what it's deficient mm-hmm. in and then supplementing uh, those things that you are perhaps deficient in. But how is that any different to... I've just So I've just had my vitamin D assays mm-hmm. done because being pale and Scottish... Um, and living in a northern European climate, mm. I'm conscious of the fact that I might be vitamin D insufficient or deficient, and that is just the relative level by which you are short of vitamin D, because I've been having some joint aches. And it comes as no surprise that I am slightly vitamin D insufficient. So I'm not deplete, I've not got a very low level of vitamin D, I've got a slightly reduced level of vitamin D. So I'm now supplementing my vitamin D, which I probably should have done a long time ago. Mm. But there's not actually that much evidence to support that those patients like myself who are vitamin D deficient, sorry, Mm. vitamin D insufficient, Mm. so a slightly reduced vitamin D, actually get any benefit from from replacing their vitamin D. So am I wasting my time? Should I I get out from the, the whole food shop that sells vitamin D supplements and stop taking them? Well, it's difficult, isn't it? Because if you take it and within a few weeks or months you feel better, you are going to think that that vitamin D has had some effect even though, as you said, there isn't any evidence to show that for us that are very slightly insufficient in levels of these things that it makes a blind bit of difference. So this is the this is the distinction between which I talk a lot about a patient talk a lot about with patients because it is a I don't know why but it presses my buttons a little bit about the distinction between the difference between causation and mm. association. Mm. And the example I often give to a patient is, well, look, because patients will come and say, I've just been diagnosed with cancer. Do you think that, the, do you think that stress has caused my cancer? Mm-hmm. And no, the answer to that question is no. There is no evidence to support that being stressed is more likely to cause you cancer. It will affect your experience mm-hmm. of having cancer mm-hmm. more negatively, quite right. But it won't, there's no evidence to support that, it will, that being stressed, however you might choose to, to, to measure that, increases your likelihood of having cancer as an independent thing now if you're stressed and you drink a lot or you're stressed and you Mm. smoke a lot that's a different matter but stress by and of itself won't and so they say but i've been really stressed for the past year and now i've developed cancer surely the two must go hand in hand i say but look well if i gave you a tablet of paracetamol now and you walked out of the practice and you got hit by a bus you wouldn't think that me giving you the paracetamol had caused you to be hit by the bus. Mm. I don't think. But they are associated. So I've just given you a tablet and you've been hit by a bus. But one clearly didn't cause the other. Mm -hmm. And that, I think, is poorly understood by patients. Or it's very easy for us to fall into that trap because as a species, we want to find meaning and patterns in everything and have you got any examples where you can think that's happened well i mean yes the one example that had significant implications for us is the link between mmr and autism um so again you know most there is there is there is no link link between between it um but uh many parents found that um 
it was within a year or two of having the MMR that their child first they thought developed autism symptoms because children because develop. that's the sort of age that you first notice autistic traits amongst children so so the fact that then uh, you know a, a doctor is able to do evidence that he suggests supports this although that hasn't been borne out actually by his evidence or anybody else's um then leaves sort of you know leads credence to that and and you know, the trouble is, as doctors, we practice what we call evidence-based medicine. So we practice what is thought to be the correct treatment for a particular illness or treatment that works that is backed up by studies that show there has been a benefit. The level may be different, but a significant benefit from a particular treatment that is safe or has, you know, certain side effects or whatever related it, but something that is well recognised and practised. Now, for for doctors, we realise that that's important. Patients have a trial of one. You know, their experience is is most valid and is going to be more valid than us necessarily telling them what we should do. And by a trial of one, you mean that their own experience is the thing that means the most to them, as opposed to the research that we do that involves absolutely. thousands yeah. of participants. Yeah, absolutely. So that's a much, you know, you know if a patient takes, and, and, the, and the thing that's, an example that's common for us is that uh, drugs come in a generic form, which is the chemical form, and then they come in a brand name. So you can get paracetamol, that's the generic form. And then, you know, uh, there are lots of different manufacturers of paracetamol in different boxes and different colours and shapes and sizes and whatever. Patients still come to us on a regular basis, and you will have had this, where a drug that they've been on for many years has been changed to a cheaper generic version and they are utterly convinced that it has either made them unwell or that um, it doesn't work as well or that it's the problem. If they just go back to the original drug, they will feel better. There is no evidence to support this, but we all will have had cases where we have gone back and prescribed them the original drug because the patient is adamant that when they change it, they don't feel as well or it doesn't work. I will tell you a better story that demonstrates that, that there's that that how poor. So you're going you're to talk about the chemical makeup of the carrier of the drug and these sorts of things now, aren't you? Presumably, no, I'm no? not. Okay. But to demonstrate how poorly that is understood, mm. even within the practice mm. of medicine. So I was working in a psychiatric unit, mm-hmm. uh, and usually I wasn't a patient there, and. One of the nurses phoned me up because I was on call for the unit to say, I've got a patient here and they are prescribed a lanzapine, which is an antipsychotic mm-hmm. yeah. drug. But we only have in the cupboard a drug called Zyprexa. Zyprexa is a lanzapine. Yeah. But it had been prescribed by the trade name, Zyprexa, rather than a lanzapine. Okay. And she said... The pharmacist has told us we are not allowed to give the drug. I said, you can go ahead and give the drug. It's exactly the Mm. same drug. But she refused to do it. So much so, and we argued about this on the phone for ages. So, but in the best interest of the patient, I went into the unit and changed it on the patient's drug chart. But it just goes to show that Mm. even within within medical practice, Mm. that is not well understood. I mean, the other thing that's worth mentioning as well, there are certain drugs 
where we do only prescribe mm-hmm. one version because something called the bioefficacy, so how it's actually absorbed, may be slightly different between brands. And because those particular drugs may have a very narrow, what's called a therapeutic index, which means that there's a very narrow band between giving too much and not enough, um, and it's that, usually, that we do recommend. And it's usually the anti-epileptic yeah, drugs yeah. are the best example of yeah. that. But that is not common. No, that's extreme. That's rare. There are very few drugs that that's the case. Okay. So our opinion of homeopathy? Uh, my personal opinion is it's complete ludicrous and we certainly shouldn't be prescribing it under the NHS or supporting it which we no longer are since 2017 Um, and um, you know I would be uh, reluctant to agree or advise a patient to seek homeopathic treatment if they want to spend the money and it's not for anything serious and they felt they've had some perceived benefit from before fine then go ahead and do it what if I gave you lots of money on a private basis? I still wouldn't do it. Well, I, I, I feel the same way. Um, I think it is a load of bumpkin, but uh, I'm a bit tired after this podcast, so it's not going to stop me going to have a little lie down with a crystal hanging over my head. Well, that's it. Episode four, where we discuss homeopathy. And as you'll see, we're not particular fans of homeopathy and some of the pseudo mysticism that surrounds other alternative therapies because we feel that perhaps it exploits people who need money uh, the most or probably taken advantage of the most as well but we hope it's a relatively balanced view that we took of that as we went through the discussion we hope it was a bit fun as well uh, so that's it uh, that's in the can uh, thanks again to anthony walters at cinephonics for supplying our theme music and charlie horn at flaming pumpkin for doing our graphics this was a saber media production i was the producer dr mike clements with contributions from dr mark james episode five coming up now